Today is a really special episode. I have Ian Lyon with me. Ian is the managing director of Atoll Travel. And for anyone who's been to the Maldives surfing, know that they're a really big name. Um, they might or might not have been involved in actually putting the Maldives on the map as a surf destination. Atoll Travel is rooted in history, and I'm stoked to have Ian here with me to tell me a little bit more about how it all started, a little bit more about Tony. We get to Tony later on. And yeah, Ian, I'm super happy to have you on the show. How are you? Thanks, Sonny. Pleasure to be with you. Um, We we tried this a couple of times. It's been three or four days of trying to connect and and, um, actually do this show. So I'm really happy like it works for now. So I just wanted to ask you a little bit more about Atoll Travel and how it all started. I mean, you have been in the industry for over 30 years, I, I, I believe. And yeah, tell me a little bit more how you actually got into the industry and how you actually got to um, start Atoll Travel. Um, well, probably the only one in the industry that didn't actually set out to get into it. Um, I was a good friend of Tony's from the early 80s when we met each other in Sri Lanka over a few years. And um, I went and stayed out in the Maldives in 1984 with Tony for a couple of months. And some year or two later, I ended up back in Australia um, doing a few things like trying to build a house, etc. And um, I was doing a bit of work with a travel agency, just helping them out um, doing the leaf management stuff when they were away. Uh, and um, Tony and I were communicating, uh, as it was, by aerograms in those days. And um, he said, uh, one day he wrote, he said, ah, oh, travel agency, learn, learn your trade well, mate. We might, we might need to use that one day. Um, little did I know that at the time he and his wife, Zulfa, were setting up Atoll Adventures. It's about 1989. Um, so he, uh, he and Zulfa set up Atoll Adventures, the Maldives tour company. And then got on to me and said, right, um, you're going to manage the bookings, which I did through a local agency for the first couple of years before we set up that old travel uh, in late 95 as a standalone agency, um, set up primarily uh, to support the, the, the tours of that old adventures. Yeah, that is that sounds like a, a great little intro for you know how you actually got got started i actually want to touch a little bit more on on tony right like he for many he's the founding father of surfing in the maldives like he he put the maldives on the map because of a i guess an um i guess a a a trip that should have never led him to the Maldives in the first place. Do you want to? Do you want to? Do you want to tell us a little bit more about that trip that actually, that actually, le- like Tony landed in the Maldives, but he d- yeah, he well, actually he, never didn't he, did. wa- he didn't want to be there in the first place, right? That that was never his plan. No, that wasn't the intention. No, he and his mate um, Mark Mark Scanlon they grew up together. They're both Maroubra boys from Sydney. Um, and they were hanging out in Sri Lanka at the time, uh, this is 1973, and decided that they wanted to get to Africa. They wanted to surf Jeffreys Bay, which was kind of like the mecca for travelling surfers in the early 70s. You visited a lot of different places um, 
many of them that you go to now weren't, weren't on the list back then. Um, but um, certainly Bali, Sri Lanka, Mauritius, um, South Africa were, were some of the main places that people went to in the early 70s for, the, for their um, um, surfing Sort of like it wasn't a backpacker thing, it was like a backpacker thing with a surfing slant to it. But uh, so Mark and uh, and Tony were in a tea shop down in, in Colombo, I think it was, um, and um, happened to bump into this older American guy, a 50 year old, somewhat strange personality, um, and um, struck up a conversation with him. Turned out that he had this really um, very luxurious sailing yacht. And uh, his crew had uh, left in Sri Lanka, so he was looking for some new crew. And uh, he said, oh, you guys are surfers. You must know a bit about the ocean. And they said, oh, yeah, all right, fine. So they jumped on this boat and hitchhiked, supposedly to get themselves across to Mauritius and then Africa. But um, uh, whether the old captain didn't read the chart too well or whether he thought the Maldives was a line of cockroach ship down the map, um, <laughs> they went... Uh, they, they ran aground on the reef in the middle of the night in late eight, late seventy three, um, and uh, as far as Tony was concerned, that was the first wave he'd ever surfed in the Maldives because the boat remarkably um, got picked up by the wave and wedged into the reef at right angles. It didn't broach, so it didn't roll over. It just wedged in upright, and they had to stay on the boat till the morning. And um, local villagers all came out most amused by uh, this flash. Western yacht that had come into the reef, um, and they spent the next. The Maldives back then, tourism had really just only the first one or two resort islands were had opened. They were very basic. The Maldives government didn't even have a stamp for your passport back in those days, um, and so the the news of the wreck got around, and uh, um, they were they were a bit of a celebrity in Mali when they got down to Mali. And they spent the next number of months helping out, salvage what they could from the boat, and then. The boat got um, uh, dragged off the reef and dry docked and repaired, uh, and um, they left the captain to do uh, his job of working out what to do with his boat then. Um, so after they'd finished the salvaging, they did a bit of travelling around the country, uh, and um, which was I mean, travelling around the country in the Maldives when it's 1,192 specks of islands and no public transport system yeah. was um, pretty interesting. In those days, they used to just get lifts on fishing boats and supply boats. They explored the place a bit and they came back up to, uh, I think they might have quickly gone back over to Sri Lanka and then Tony thought, no, I'm going to go back to that spot in the Maldives. Season's changed, winds are changing, swells should be coming. There's got to be some waves out there. So he came back with a, a friend and got a boat. Um, I jumped on a, a local fishing boat guy. Went to have a look around the eastern um, side of North Mali Atoll and came around a corner and here was this reeling left-hander just barreling around the corner. Tony looked at the Maldivian guy and said, where's the next village, nearest village? And the Maldivian guy pointed over his shoulder to the island of Himafushi. And he said, right, that's where I'm going to live. And so he did. Uh, from 74 onwards, his basic residence was on the island of Himafushi, which is the island that jailbreaks his island next door to Honkins. Do you actually know where he run 
or ran into trouble in the first place? Like where did the boat actually hit the reef? Was that in the Malia area or was it close to, you know, where uh, Cinnamon, Cinnamon Don Valley Pasta Point is today? Or do, do you know the exact spot? No, no, I don't know the exact spot, um, but I think it was, I think it was the atoll to the north um, of North Mali Atoll, which would be um, uh, might have been Laviani. Mm-hmm. It might have been right up the north of Mali Atoll. I'm actually not too sure on, on exactly where it was, Sonny, but I know when they were doing the the salvage, they were staying in Mali, and they'd have to get a a sailing dony, and I think the sail was about six or seven hours to get up to the wreck. They okay. do the salvaging for four or five hours and then yeah. sail back again down to, to Marley. So it must have been a fair distance. Okay. And I understand that Tony, when he first ran into trouble and then he realized, well, there is, you know, there's waves in the Maldives and there's surf, he actually kept it a secret for a very long time. He only surfed it, well, A, by himself, and B, with his very close friends. So when was when did it start to, like, shift when he was kind of like, well, you know, we could actually make a business out of it? And when when um, when did that, that happen? Yeah, well, Tony used to joke. He said, I knew that we were going to have to get, you know, do something – commercial with it sooner or later, but he said it was like marriage. I put it off as long as I could, but in the end it just had to happen. Um, so, yeah, it was a very tightly held secret. I first went there in early 84, um, Tony having let me in on the secret during one of our afternoon discussions at uh, over at Aragon Bay in Sri Lanka. For some reason he decided he'd let me in on the secret. Um, I mean, he'd met hundreds of surfers in Aragon Bay over the years, but they all grilled him on well, where are you from? The Maldives? Gee, there must be surf over there. And Tony's response was, no, well, there isn't. If there was, why am I over here with you 40 blokes <laughs> trying to get away in the crowd, uh, which was a fairly reasonable response. Yeah, So absolutely. the word was there was no, no surf in the Maldives. But there was Tony and um, Mark, of course, who was in the shipwreck, um, his good mate Gary, who was a family friend of, of the Hind family in Sydney, Gary Spenton couple of years out on the island with Tony in the late 70s. Uh, South African Fred, who's Fred's ledge on the inside of Honky's right. bowl. Right, okay. That's named after Fred. He yep. himself open. There was um, um, Buzzer and two or three others. By the time I visited there in 84, and Mark and Gary uh, were actually having a visit at the time. They used to pop over for a few weeks at a time. And... Um, we were sitting around one night talking about it, and I said, well, you know, you discovered the waves in 74. It's now 84. How many how many guys have surfed it between then and now? And Gary and Mark and, and Tony sat there and went, you're the 10th. I said, 10 people in 10 years are the one. And they said, yep, yeah, you're the 10th. That's uh, just it's a very tightly remarkable. held secret. <laughs> well, I mean, when I when I got the letter, I was living in Mauritius, and I got the letter from Tony to say that if you want to come out and stay on the island, like we discussed, you've got to do it before May '84 because they're going to change the, the rulings on what were the guest houses then, which were really just family homes with a spare room. And um, uh, but of course, it was you know, don't tell anyone where you're going. You've got to keep the secret. 
Um, and I was travelling with one of my oldest mates in Mauritius, and he was we were going to be heading to South Africa. Uh, and I said to a mate, sorry, can't tell you where I'm going, but I'm, I'm disappearing for a while. And uh, only years later, said, gee, you didn't even tell your mate Sid. I said, well, you told me not to tell anyone. So I didn't tell anyone. <laughs> my parents didn't know where I'd gone. I just sent my parents a telegram um, or a aerogram to say, uh, you won't hear from me for a few months because I'm going to some isolated islands. I didn't tell them where. So anybody that was on, in on the secret was really, we'd, we'd sworn in blood on that secret. <laughs> we weren't telling anyone. So for, by the time the late 80s came along, um, there was a bit of word of mouth. Tony by that stage said, well, you know, if you know somebody that you trust, um, keep a secret, tell them to book in, book at this hotel, and uh, I'll come out and uh, take them out from the Zodiac. Because by that stage, yeah, the Zodiac. And some actually were quite well-known surfing industry names were were in the first, you know, thirty or forty, uh, and they all kept the secret. Nobody ever nobody ever muttered a word about it. So by the late eighties, there was probably oh, I don't know, fifty or sixty people in the world that that knew of the surf, but we were pretty much all keeping it a secret. I mean, um, that's just. But what was happening amazing. in the Maldives was that tourism was growing. Yeah, um, and. You know, one by one, another island would get a hotel and then another island would get a hotel. And by the late 80s, as Tony explained it to me, he said, mate, it's just a matter of time before some French or um, South African or Australian honeymooner comes out here and he's on the boat out with his girl and they'll come around the corner of these islands and see these waves and yeah. just go, what the? Um, and... You know, with the amount, the way tourism is growing here, the, the, these breaks in North Mali Atoll aren't that far from um, from the airport and the resorts were all being built in that region. So he knew that purely because of the tourism that was coming along that it was pointless trying to keep it a secret any longer. And um, um, there was one one bloke uh, who had come out and Tony had taken him surfing and he was going to keep the secret. But... Um, um, he, uh, he decided he wanted to do a little thing on his own without telling Tony. So these things all happened about the same time in about 88, 89. Um, so Tony and Zulfa set up our whole adventures and said, right, we're going to run a bona fide um, tour company. So uh, so how, did, how, like, what was the actual final step? Did Tony decide to start the company, Atoll Adventures, and kind of put it on the map? Publicly, or was there somebody else who did it before him? No, it was um, uh, there was a bit of um, this other individual um, did actually put a bit of publicity in one of the Queensland newspapers mm -hmm. um, at about the time that we were producing our first flyers. Yeah, um, okay. We didn't have we didn't have any money in those days to do any marketing, and so I just got printed up a load of flyers and. Um, got the mailing address of just about every surf shop around Australia, folded up three flyers to put it in an envelope and posted it off to see what would happen. <laughs> because, you know, back then the fax was the latest piece of technology. Yeah, right. That was okay. the best way for Tony and Zulf and I to communicate was by fax. Yeah, okay. that was That was that, that was new. So this is, you know, 1990 thereabouts. Yeah. Um, yeah. So the, he was very torn because at the start um, – uh, there was a – we wanted some publicity, but we didn't want to blow the name out there completely. We wanted to sort of seep out over time. 
um, and um, which was probably a bit naive of us that we could you know, take a softly, softly approach to it. Um, but we did the first couple of um, magazine trips um, and didn't name it as the Maldives there. Put a Divi Raj was one of the articles, which is the Maldivians, a Maldivian name for the, for the Maldive Islands. Um, and um, where did you? Where, where was put, the first article that. published in in Australia, like in a newspaper or a surf mag, or how did that Surfing work? Surfing mag. Um, yep. I think what was that? That must have been ninety two or ninety three. Um, uh, Australian Surfing Life with yeah. uh, Ted, Gran Ted Rambo. Actually, it was Ted Rambo that um, had sort of been in contact with Tony and Tony contacted me and was surprised to find out that um, Ted grew up in the area that I live and uh, well, that I live now, a bit down the coast from where I was when we were young, but um, actually knew Ted's sister pretty well and, and Ted a bit. Um, and by that stage, Ted Rambo's name in surf photography was getting pretty well about. And um, he wanted to go out. It was a new area. Ted loved going to new areas. But it was a matter of about getting the sponsors together, whether it was Billabong or Ripper or whoever, and the magazines on board. So Ted did, um, Ted did the first trip out there, and I think that was 93, 92 or 93. Um, and then there was another trip done um, with Trax magazine. Yep. So there were two articles that were done in that early year. Maldives wasn't named as such, but you wouldn't have needed to be much of a genius to work out where it was. Um, and then, obviously, uh, it started to um, pop up um, and, you know, we were running little ads and tracks wherever we could afford to. Uh, it went on from there. It gradually got more and more publicity and, like anything, um, you know, once we were doing it and this other guy in Queensland was doing a little boat charter thing, um, then, of course, it didn't take long for uh, the surf travel industry. There was only a few people in, involved in it in those days and, you know, progressively one by one more companies turned up um, until there's now, I don't know, there's, <laughs> there's dozens and dozens and dozens of surf travel companies around the world now. Whereas That's back then there was absolutely about, true. <laughs> there, there was about three of us. Yep. Yeah. I mean – we're talking about the 90s or even earlier than that. And obviously, like maps, they didn't really exist the way we have them to today, where we can just, you know, kind of flip open our phones and, and check, you know, where we want to go and how we want to get there. So, and I understand that back in the day, Tony and I guess his entourage that included you as well, you guys actually named a lot of the spots in the area, like in North Mali. How did that go about? Like, how did you guys go around and say, all right, well, you know, we call this one honkies and then, you know, you kind of move on to the next break. And so tell, talk to me about that. Like how, what was the idea behind those names as well? Uh, well, let's, you know, by the time I got there, Tony had been there ten years, so he had his he had his nicknames for the different breaks. It wasn't like he set out to name them in particular, mm -hmm. except for Honkies. Um, Tony's nickname was Honky, mm -hmm. and that was the first wave he saw that you know came reeling around the corner and barreling through the bowl. Um, that was the the moment that that his life changing decision was that he was going to hang in the Maldives because how how good's his surf? 
Yeah. Um, and he adopted the country, and the country adopted him. But I mean, he had his, his little nicknames for that. But he called he, he'd always called honkies honkies. Um, although we called it sometimes Crystal Corner at Capes and Fats. Uh, there was there was a few, we had a few other little names that was uh, there, but basically that one was always honkies. And then um, I mean the the one. At, a jailbreak called Jailbreak Now, but back then when I first stayed there on the island in 84, there was a proper jail there. And, um, you know, I'd walk from Tony's house down through the bush track, get to nearly the jail wall and you'd wade out across the uh, lagoon and then skim out across the reef and paddle out the back. So, you know, we called that prisons or the prison point or mm. um, Prison point to Maldivian language. They often put an oo on the end of a word if they don't have it in their language. I got gotcha. you. Okay. Bis- biscuit's a Western word. Yep. Maldivians got it and called it biscuitu. <laughs> um, but anyway, um, honkies, sultans, that was sort of in reference to the history of the Maldives in that it used to be um, a group of sultanates mm-hmm. in that country going back, their history goes back a couple of thousand years. It's, it's pretty interesting. Thor Heyerdahl did a lot of exploration and writing about the early Maldives or what he perceived was the early Maldives. Um, but when it came to doing a commercial approach to, to having a surf tour, well then, yeah, you kind of needed to be able to list formal names. So when people said to you, rang you up and said, oh, what are the surf breaks? You go, well, we've got Honkies is a left, and Sultans is a right, and um, prisons or jails is a right. And we thought, well, we, we, we better decide um, if we're going to publicise it, what we're going to call. Mm-hmm. Um, so Tony and I were cruising up North Mali Atoll, and, and it was this 89 and 90, working out how we're going to do this. And, well, what's this break? He said, oh, I call it past the point. No, oh, why is that? He said, well, because the kitchen, back then, um, the island was Tari Village, which was a very small 20-room Italian-run place um, on the verge of being quite run down. Uh, and um, I thought, why well, past the point? He said, well, the kitchen hands come out to the end of the island with the leftover spaghetti and hurl it out onto the rocks. So <laughs> the rocks has got the pasta there, so I call it past the point. No, okay, past the point sounds good. Then <laughs> um, we went up a bit further and passed another break and said, oh, well, what's, what's this one? He said, oh, well, no, it's the island of tools to do. Well, got, got a name for it? And he said, oh, called Colas. Well, why is that? He said, oh, because the Coca-Cola factory's on that island. Okay, fine. So I called that one Colas, um, and which later morphed into Cokes. So sometimes some people call it Colas, yeah. some call it Cokes. Um, and then there's the chickens. And we got there and stopped and had a surf. I said, well, what do you call this? He said, oh, I don't really call it anything. Well, what, what do you think? I said, what's on this island? He said, um, well, there's actually a chicken battery there. They you know, do eggs, grow chooks and get eggs. All right, chickens it is. <laughs> so they were all pretty, I mean, off-the-cuff type ones. Um, jails, I said, well, what are we going to call it? Prison point or Jails, or I think, what about jailbreak? Thinking of, uh, um, I think I might have had the ACDC song rattling around in my head at the yeah. time. He thought, what about jailbreak? It doesn't sound right for the authorities. I said, oh, I don't think the authorities are going to take much notice of it, but it sounds good to me. Okay, we'll call it 
jailbreak then. Um, and there's no jail there now, of course, but uh, there was a time in the early days after there'd been a coup attempt and uh, we couldn't surf it for a number of years. Mm-hmm. But, uh, that so, and then down in the south um, through the central and outer atolls that Tony had travelled around a few times over the years, several times over the years, he he found breaks there that he just, you know, beacons is called beacons because there's a beacon on the on the point. Um, <laughs> okay. Called uh, Love Charms, Love Charms, because apparently Thor Iredale found something, some sort of relics there. Um, antiques was called Antiques because Thor Iredale found some antique pottery or something there. Um, yeah. Um, tiger okay. Stripes got Tiger Stripes because... Certain light, but the waves get stripes up them from the crevices in the reef, and the waves look like they've got stripes. So he called it tiger stripes. See, I actually so didn't the, know that um, he ventured all the way to the south as well, and actually named the spots that are pretty famous today, right? Like when you talk about the southern atolls, you talk about tiger stripes, you talk about love chums, like. I had no idea yeah. that he actually named these waves as well. Yeah, all those main ones. There's been other waves throughout the middle atolls. I mean, he didn't discover every single break in the Maldives. There are there are odd breaks there that work on peculiar swell directions and large swells that most of the time they're not a break, but occasionally they're, they're quite, you know, functional, especially if there's a really big swell going and the regular breaks are too big for the tourist surfers. Yeah. Um, but those main ones, you know, yin yangs, um, down at um, in the central atolls, next to six senses, uh, yeah, yeah, next to six senses. You know, he called it yin yang because when they flew over it, it looks like a yin yang symbol. Okay. So yeah, he, look, he, he covered most of them. There's now some some of them have been varied by different um, innovators, if you like. Yeah. But yeah, he travelled all the way down through there in the seventies and eighties. I said when I was staying in the, if you were asking about the maps, staying at his um, house in Himafushi, and the, the house in the early 80s was coral walls, tin roof, no electricity, um, sitting by a candle of the night time, um, and um, that was fairly basic. But on the wall, we had um, a British Admiralty map of the whole of the Maldives. Okay. British Admiralty maps were very, very detailed. Uh, and he said, oh, you know, I've gone over that and, looked at where the, the the entrances to the atolls are and what their angle is. And um, I said, you don't sort of spend a lot of time going down, you know, surfing these breaks that you've found down there. He said, uh, no, mate, um, really no point. Um, four of the best waves in the country are right here on my doorstep. Mm-hmm. Faster Point, Sultans, Honkies and Jails. I'm within a few. Couple of back then, I'm within a few hours sailing Doning of Marley, where his um, girlfriend or wife was by that stage. Um, there's no public transport down through that area, so the only time we've been down there, if I, you know, unless I can afford to charter a boat or buy a boat, you've got to get lifts on fishing boats and um, supply boats, which is you know a lot of adventure and fun uh, when you did it. The few times you did it. But why would I? Why would I go to all that effort when I've got the four best breaks in the country sitting right here? Yeah, uh, which absolutely. Is quite logical. 
Yeah, absolutely. I actually, I have two questions. So the first one is about, you know, you, you mentioned it before, right? Like his first house, like no electricity, you know, candlelight, things like that. So, you know, I've been to the Maldives a couple of times now, and it always amazes me how you get out, out of the airport and literally you surround it by water. Everything is done by water. Like, you know, whether you need to go to places, you know, like taxis, connections, it's all on the water. So I wanted to ask you, who's been there very early on, like how it was back then. I mean, I, I can only imagine like there was nothing, nothing there. Well, what you don't see now is a sail dining. Um, or very, very rarely would you see one, and it's probably for tourist purposes. Mm-hmm. Um, in 84, probably 75, 80% of donies were still sail donies. But that was the era where they were gradually, people were dropping the outboard mo- uh, the diesel engines mm-hmm. um, into their donies. And the Maldivians felt themselves being blessed again by Allah, but it just so happened that the shape of the, of the um, Typical shape of the Maldivian Doni, which is based off an Arab Dow. Doesn't matter how big the boat is, they've all basically got the same hull shape. Um, and it's just perfect. You just lift up the decking, put in a, um, a bit of a boulder platform into the base, drop a diesel engine in, punch a hole through a drive shaft out the back, away you go. <laughs> um, and you still, still keep your, your tiller the way it was always being steered by the, the skipper or by his foot. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was just a walk-up start for the Maldivians, whoever had a boat. As soon as you could afford to drop a diesel engine into your boat, whether it was a tiny little one or a great big one, you did it. But um, So the only getting around when I first, uh, when I was there in 84, to get from Malay out to the island, because um, I had to spend five days quarantine in Malay before I was out, allowed out to a village island. Okay, well, why was that? Oh, they said it was to do a bit with malaria and things like okay. that. But um, apparently there was a – Tony once told me there was an underlying thing that um, it's, it, it kind of slowed the, the hippie travellers from India coming over and, and going to the islands. Because back in the 70s there was a fair bit of that. Um, mm-hmm. And one of the reasons why they stopped village guest houses back in 84 was they were concerned at the influence of these um, Westerners that were coming and, you know, living on, on – very traditional Islamic islands um, and carrying on like Western hippies. Yeah. Um, and by having to spend five days in Mali, which cost you money, you know, even back then a, a room in a Mali um, hostel was you know, probably 20 US a night or something like that, um, it just put a little bit of an obstacle for, mm-hmm. for, for the hippie crowd to get out there. But ostensibly it was about malaria, I think. Um, but uh, anyway, that, that was good. Mali was you know, different. The highest building in Mali back then was the new mosque that was being built. Um, and the only other, the only two-storey places was, I think, the law courts down on Marine Parade down the front. But uh, obviously it's now multi-storeys all over the island. But, uh, so there was a, to get out to Himafushi, there was, I think it was like a, once every three days there was a supply boat that would go from Malay and take the people from the island that had been visiting Malay, take them back to back to Himafushi Island and some supplies had come in. So whatever day it was, Tony said, right, well, you know, get down to the dock in Malay and by that time and get on this particular boat, it'll be called that. And 
pay the money and you'll get dropped off at Imafushi. I'll be there waiting for you. But uh, other than that, crazy. you get around. I mean, Tony to go surfing when I first went there had a, a sail dhoni. Mm-hmm. And this thing was, I don't know how long it was. It'd be lucky if it was 14 foot long. Uh, traditional little sail dhoni. And um, that's, he amazed me there. I'd only, you know, I'd known him and spent good time with him in Sri Lanka. You know, righto, we're going for a surf. We're getting the boards. We go down, we grab the poles. You get on the little wooden dhoni. You pole out across the lagoon, pole out through the little gap in the reef, um, unless you want to go a long way through the harbour entrance, which was nowhere near the size it is now. Um, pole out to the outside of the reef, throw up the single sail. Um, and to get to surf honkies from, from Imafushi, you had to, You'd sail right out to the back of Tumbaradu Island and then tack right the way across and then tack all the way in. And judging from the current, the wind, the whole bit, judging this little single sail dhoni, getting it right on the spot, um, basically doing a bit of a handbrake slide on the end of the reef. Uh, my job was to dive over with the anchor and wedge the anchor in. <laughs> and then we'd spend pretty much the day over there just surfing at honkies. But watching him and how he'd learnt to sail, um, you know, he, he was he was just like a, a native Maldivian when it came to sailing one of those little boats. He had it down completely. It's quite amazing. Um, and then when I was there that time, he got his first motor. So he'd, he'd had a transom built on the back of the Dhoni and a Yamaha, like a Yamaha 75 horse or whatever that he'd, um, he'd have imported and, uh, he was like a kid with his first bike at Christmas when he had that, and we didn't have to pole out, we just putted out, and we didn't have to worry about the current. We just made it, made it out to the brake, set the anchor, none of the tacking in and out, way out to sea to get the right angle to come in. Uh, so that was that was when he got his first um, mobility with his dome. I mean, these stories are, you know, I could listen to it you know, for hours. I mean, it's crazy, especially for people who've been to the Maldives and they see that, you know, the transformation of, of the country, like what you're telling us, it's, just, it's, um, it's unbelievable. And I want to dive, I want to dive into how atoll travel or adventures also, also was very involved in the community itself. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Yeah, well, in the first um, times, apart from, you know, the, the Westerners, and to say, it was wrong to say there was the 10th surfer, the 10th foreigner, because he did get some of the young Maldivians to surf, mm-hmm. got them into it. Um, he said, well, you know, I wasn't worried about them keeping a secret. They weren't going anywhere to tell anyone. And it was great to have somebody to paddle around with um, rather than surf on your own. Um, so that he, he kind of introduced modern surfing. I mean, Maldivian kids, like any kids anywhere in the world that's ever had white water following up, they've been using planks of wood and things to, to catch catch waves for forever. Um, but for conventional surfing or contemporary surfing, the introduction was then. Uh, and Tony bought it. I've actually got the original board up behind me in my office here. That's great. That the very first one that he got shipwrecked there with. Um, and um, so he encouraged a lot of them to surf. Uh, early days of the tours, we used to run you know, the first of the surf comps for the local guys at Pastor Point, uh, adult travel, and get the trophies made up by um, a guy over here who used to make some pretty cool fiberglass wave trophies. 
Um, I'd cart them over there. We'd run the surf comp for a couple of days at Pastor Point, and um, you know that that was that was the initial part of, of um, sort of mentoring a lot of the younger guys. And then, of course, as the the tours gradually picked up, then Tony needed staff, so he always had Maldivian surfers, pretty much always, with the exception of um, uh, his mate Mark, who came out and helped out for a couple of years. But um, you know, he's had a, a whole range of um, Maldivian surfers, and even now, and Tony's been dead 12 years, but um, we're coming up to 14 years. Um, always encourage Maldivian surfers to do the job, and there's a heck of a lot of the Maldivian surfers in the surf guiding business got their start yeah. past the point without a whole pensions. Um, mm. Great long list of them, uh, and that's been great. I mean, it's a it, it's a job, um, it's a bit of a career path for them. I'd like to see it more. A bit more formalised over there, um, turned it into a you know, really good career, um, and uh, yeah, there was a there was a lot of give back there and, and to the local villages because I mean the the boat guys for Atoll Adventures, there's like a, a dozen of them now. They're all Himafushi locals, uh, so you know when there's things like the tsunami hit and those villages were so severe, badly affected. We started a, a fundraiser with through our client base, and I think we raised about twenty-five or thirty thousand US dollars for the local village. Um, um, so yeah, there was a fair bit of put back there. I mean, Tony always felt, you know, he, he, he used to say, "I thank Allah for the day that we got shipwrecked because it gave his life his direction and it gave it to him, providing a heck of a lot of waves as well." Um, but he's got his, his dearly beloved Zulfa, he married, a couple of kids. Um, so, it, yeah, it was the, – the country had given a lot to him, so he was always very conscious about making sure uh, that it was repaid in a, lot of, in a lot of ways. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you could also – I mean, I – actually, this leads me to my next question or next kind of segment, and I want to talk about Pasta Point. Right. Like I, I had the pleasure to surf it. I visited you guys, I think two or three years ago now. And you could see for, for, for anyone who, who isn't familiar with this atoll travel or atoll adventures, like your HQ in the Maldives is actually right at Pasta Point, right at Cinnamon Dom Valley, right? Yeah. Well, it was where the tour started. Um, and, you know, the, Tony picked that island for a pretty simple reason, apart from the fact that it had a little resort there that you could sleep people on. Um, it was located you know, not within sight of Sultans and Honkies um, and only less than 10 minutes in, in a in a putt-putt dony to get across to those breaks. Mm. So it was it was clearly the logical place. He cho- he, it's the best spot to do it. That's why he chose it. Um, it remains, we believe, probably the best spot to do it. Um, he... Uh, he, it was close to the Himafushi, which meant he could use his boats and use his village people that um, he'd used a lot, uh, knew very well and trusted. Uh, so it, it sort of had all the, it ticked all the boxes, basically. Yeah, I mean, when you when when you are when you actually are on the island, when you actually are at the resort, you see, you know, there's a lot of 
memorabilias and 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 I guess like memories that kind of like remember Tony. Like I I remember there's boards, there's pictures, there is you know all sorts of stuff that people can kind of follow. You know his story and what he's done for for the Maldives. I want to dive in a little deeper into the whole setup, right? Like you already touched on it, why he chose the island, but how did it become a private wave? How did it become? You know, I mean, you don't have to be you don't have to be a core surfer to know that Pasta Point is one of the best waves, if not the best wave in the Maldives. Like it, it is, it is a famous spot. So how did, how did that happen that, you know, um, not only that the wave was privatized, but, but also, you know, the fame that kind of came with it. Um, it's not so much that it was privatized. Any island in the Maldives, a village island or an island leased for a resort, Mm-hmm. As has a certain jurisdiction of water around it, whether it's the area inside an outlying reef or whether it's from um, where the channel finishes, if there isn't an outlying reef. In the situation of resort leases, um, most of the resorts are, are granted X amount of metres to see what outside their resort as part of their jurisdiction. It's just the way the industry works over there. Okay. Um, and when we started at Pastor Point, there was a resort there. Um, and the background to it um, actually came as probably we'd been a couple of years into it and we had a group of guys there and then all of a sudden this boat came down with a, uh, a bunch of surfers, I won't say which nationality they were, <laughs> but um, they just jumped out and raided the break and it turned out that they'd booked a holiday to the Maldives figuring that getting to the surf was really easy and they booked to a, a resort further to the north that didn't have a surf break and then they found out it was an arm and a leg to hire a boat to go anywhere. So eventually they all said, we've got to get some surf. So they hired the boat, paid the arm and leg, came down and just <laughs> took it out on the crew and passed the point. Because our guests came in and went to the manager and said, what's going on here? These guys are just coming. Hassled us, dropped in on us, used us, stolen all the waves. And, and the manager of the island said, well, that doesn't seem right. So he contacted the, the, the boss of the company that um, past the point or Tari Village in those days, who then contacted the tourism ministry, etc., and was told by the ministry, well, the, that body of water is under your jurisdiction. It's up to you to keep it safe. So from then, um, it was like, well, we're not going to have our experiences like that happen again where non-guests just come and you know, ruin it for our guests who are paid to be at this resort and surf this way. So mm-hmm. it's always been that way. It's been that that way from the start. So there was nothing innovative innovative about, mm-hmm. you know, okay. anyone privatizing the break. Yep. It's 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 what it's the house reef if you like, they call that. Um, yep. and the same, you can't you can't go into any resort island and do what you want inside their territorial waters. Absolutely. Yeah. That makes makes a so lot that's of how sense. it works. And it's, look it's and it's a sustainable thing. And we're running at 33 surfers now. It, used, it was 30 for many years. Um, and, you know, as it became more popular, as more companies started to get out there and more and more charter boats got into the game, the place got more and more crowded. Um, and, I mean, we would have made a lot more money if we didn't bother about the limit. But it was always Tony's thing. He said, I don't want to be here and run this. 
mm. in a in a, a supermarket style. He said we want to keep it this way, and we stopped doing inner atoll. That's like North Marley, South Marley atoll. We stopped doing any boat charters there about I don't know fifteen years ago, just mm. because. Well, what do you need to do a boat charter here for? Stay on the island. You, um, the other resorts that had surfer catering for the surfing market, and so we only ever then did boat charters in the southern or central adults. Uh, but one by one, whether that was naive, um, I don't know. But one by one, a lot of the other companies, you know, they had their websites with 10, 15 boats being advertised, and every Maldivian that had a charter boat was into surfing tours. Uh, and it got it got a little bit out of hand there for a while. I think it's eased off now. Mm-hmm. Uh, Purely because, as you understand, surfing is one of those activities. Um, and again, it's with the numbers, as we've had different management and ownership companies at, at um, Tari Village slash Cinnamon Don Valley slash past the point, and the new management company going, Wow, you're doing such a great job. You're great. 30 surfers. Why don't we make it 60? Yeah. Tony and I, we have to get the magazine out and get the pencil out and draw a reef and explain that. It's one person per wave, and only so many waves come through in a day on a good day. Um, and the simple analogy is, is, you know, if you've got a perfect, you know, head-high glassy day out past the point with five guys in the water, that is surfing heaven. Yeah. But exactly the same day with 50 guys in the water is surfing hell. Absolutely, it's, absolutely. Once they understand that there's the sustainability aspect to it, um, then they're fully supportive. Of that, because they want their their people, they want the tour to run with. I mean, we work on about seventy percent repeat bookings every year. Now that COVID's over and the Australians and the Kiwis will be able to get back in, we'll probably be up over eighty percent repeat of bookings this year. Mm-hmm. Uh, just because they keep coming back, some of them year after year after year, because they know that's the quality of surf experience they're going to get. I mean, like I said before, right? Like the the setup is amazing. Like the way it's managed, um, just the setup itself, the wave. So for anybody who hasn't checked it out, I mean, I you know, it's highly recommended. Like you guys, you guys are top notch there for sure. Well, thank you, Sonny. We like to think so. <laughs> <laughs> no, absolutely. I mean, I mean, it's how well it's run. I mean, Tony set that all up, but then um, Dara is the operations manager. Uh, for adult adventures. I and mean, after Tony's died, his son came back out from Australia and he's kind of taken over management of the, mm-hmm. of the company. But Dara's the operations manager of the day-to-day business on the island. And he's you know, he's been doing it for 26 or 7 years. Um, he's the nicest, politest, most diplomatic guy, but very well organised. Um, and, um, you know, it, that's that's just it's not just the wave it's not just the location it's not just the consistency but it's the team that he puts together um, and the staff that uh, make it a great experience for people they get to know the surf guides very well and um, and Dara has it really really well coordinated um, so that you know that's a part of it you know the boats the boats are, are available all day they're not set to a, they're not set to a timetable mm-hmm. um, you know the motive is that the, the winds can change, the current can change, uh, and you, you need to have that flexibility. So the first boat's ready at five thirty in the morning, and the last boat's ready to go out at four thirty in the afternoon for the evening session. 
Um, yeah. It ha- they have to be available like that to take account of what when the current's going to kick in, what that storm's going to do and when the wind's going to swing, um, whether the swell's on the up or the down. Um, it, it needs that flexibility. And so all the boats are connected with walkie-talkie. And, you know, if we've got a boat sitting over at jails and somebody's a bit interested, bring up the boat. How many's out in the water at jails? Oh, heaps or not that many. Mm-hmm. Or the, the call might come in from one of the boat guys, hey, the charter boats here have all gone for lunch. It's hard. There's only five or six in the water. Send some guys over. Um, yeah. that, that sort of ability to, to move your, your guests around the break at the, the optimum times, that's, that makes a lot of difference. I mean, like I said, you know, the, it's like it's such a nostalgic place as well because, yes, you said it before, it's not just the consistency, it's also the operation, but also it's the whole backstory of it as well that kind of makes this place, the wave, you know, the setup very special. And, yeah, we definitely or I definitely felt it when I was there. Well, it's been 30 years of my life, Sonny. (laughs) Whenever I go over there, I mean, it's transformed from a run-down 24-room place. It's been taken over. It's had millions of dollars thrown at it. It's had reclamation. The shape of the island bears very little resemblance to the shape of the island in 1984 or 1992 when we first put um, the tours there. Um, It's had a lot of development done to it over the time, but that's, again, typical of Maldives and their tourism industry developing islands, um, even creating new ones to put a resort on. Um, but uh, yeah, so it's, I kind of each time I go over, the older I get, the more I go back and look at it and just sit there and sometimes pinch myself thinking, well, that's been an interesting 30 years, hasn't it? <laughs> I mean, certainly has, you know, with all your stories and all your travels. I think, you know, this like last 50 minutes we've been talking i mean it's been you know you kind of you kind of took us back in time like it was it was awesome it was great yeah, you're welcome and we're actually i'm out of questions so if I, I don't know i don't have anything else to ask i i was just sitting here you know like mesmerized by the stories and and you know things I've never heard before, and I've learned a lot during the last 50, 50 minutes. So, is there anything you want to add that we haven't touched on that you know the world needs to know about? You know, atoll travel, atoll adventures, about you, about Tony. You know, whatever it is. Uh, no, not really. Um, <laughs> Tony, Tony died in two thousand and eight, and uh, that was. And his wife had died a few months earlier than that. It's it, we've had some ups and downs. We've had some really tough times. Um, uh, we've had some great times, but that's the travel industry. Um, you know, things. Do we used to do a bit of eco-cultural tourism in in Sri Lanka, and you'd be going good for a couple of years, and then something would flare up, and you couldn't do it for another year or two. And um, what the Maldives have, you know, we, what did Tony get through? I mean, he went. He was, he was in his house with his wife in Marley when the, the nineteen ninety when the nineteen eighty eight coup attempt was on. Uh, he was in Sri Lanka during the tsunami. Lucky to have survived that. He was in Sri Lanka in the early eighties when the first the troubles blew up and the island was just going berserk. And um, yeah, he saw he's, he hadn't been shipwrecked there. He saw a bit more <laughs> excitement after that. Um, so there, there was all sorts of 
of things that have happened. But even since then, COVID's been probably the worst of it. Um, we were lucky, yeah. all of us, to deal with the Maldives that they only really shut down for four or five months. Um, and the Maldivian government did a very good job of managing COVID, I believe. Uh, but they had the geography to allow them to do it. You could fly people in. As long as you knew that they were negative, you put them on a sanitised speedboat and send them to a sanitised island and they could at least have their, their holiday there. So they did. the Maldivian government, I think, did a good job with COVID and really saved their economy because it's like 90% of their economy is based on tourism. Yeah. Um, so they couldn't afford to have been out of action, you know, not like Australia, shutting your borders for two years. Um, yeah, absolutely. So... They did, they, did, they did a great job with that. But it's been a hard couple of years, the, the COVID. But um, for those for those that got managed to get out there in the second half of uh, 2020, um, they were getting surf around there. Crowds or lack of crowds hasn't been seen like that since the early to mid-90s. Yeah, that's so true. I was actually much. there in May last year and it was it was crazy. There was no one there. Yeah, well, good, good luck to you. <laughs> I've, I've just been to the I've just been to the Maldives and I was the first trip back since it started. I hadn't been there for two years. It's the longest I haven't been to the Maldives in thirty five years or something. But yeah. Um, um, yeah, no, that's just how it goes. The place develops. It would have been nice if uh, it hadn't become quite so popular. But when you think of the Maldives geographically, um, it's good to travel to from Australia from Europe. Um, the waves there are super heavy, so a lot of the newer surfing nationalities, which are you know, a lot of the Europeans that aren't tra traditional surfing countries. Yeah. Uh, I mean, we get Russians, Germans, Croatians. There's all sorts of people out there surfing now, but as I've said for a long, many years to people when they ask about the surf, the waves are picture postcard perfect, but they don't have four foot big leaps. Yeah. And uh, the older guys and a lot of our clients past the point of you know in the 45 to 65 to 70 range and you know they did all their adrenaline surfing back in the 70s and 80s in Indonesia and places like that they surf for fun now so fun and camaraderie of it and the Maldives is, is a great place for that because they're just so user friendly most of the breaks you know there's, there's a few breaks that are a bit heavier there are some that have got some heavier sections but um, they, they really are very user-friendly type surf, and so it shouldn't be surprising that uh, um, so many surfers of all standards uh, like to go to the Maldives. Absolutely. Maybe a few too many at times. <laughs> well, surfing is a popular sport, and, you know, it's, it's definitely increasing in popularity all over the world. So Yeah, well, we're going to build we have some to more deal wave with pools. It. Exactly. Get them all into wave pools. <laughs> yeah, that no, should no, be. That's probably another topic for our podcast as well, <laughs> talking about the rise of the wave pools. <laughs> yeah, the, 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 you know, you don't get cut by coral, and there's no biteys and stingies out in a wave pool. That's correct. Leave the ocean, leave the ocean to old people who don't mind getting bitten or stung. That's correct. Anyway, Ian, I, thank you so much. I now much. take my tongue firmly out of my cheek. No worries, Sonny. Um, Thank Chat you again so much. Sometime. Absolutely.